0: is Imogen from SquarePeg. We are a venture capital firm with a purpose to empower the exceptional and today I'm bringing you the story of our newest portfolio company, Vow, whose $6 million seed round we just led. But before we get into the episode, I'm going to tell you two things about me. The first is that one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten was a bite of my housemate's chicken burger in 2010. It wasn't a fancy chicken burger. Actually, it was from a super dodgy takeaway outside of our university. And if I'm remembering right, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning and we were pretty drunk. But regardless, it was good, like really, really good. The second thing you should know is that I'm a lifelong vegetarian. I could count on my hands the number of times I've eaten meat, and they've all been accidental, chicken burger included. I once popped a prawn dumpling in my mouth at a dim sum restaurant for example, but that's basically it. The entire extent of my meat eating adventures. And though this made me kind of a weird kid in rural Lancashire where my siblings all happily ate meat and fish, I was always clear that if eating meat meant killing animals, I'd rather have a double serving of potato instead. Now at this point I want to be clear that I really have no judgment over what or how much you eat. In truth if I was honest with myself I'd probably need to be completely vegan if I was to take my own ethical decisions as a logical conclusion but I haven't because I love brie so really no judgment. I'm telling you this for context because my experience has been that I've been curious about alternative production methods of meat for years. If there was a way of producing truly delicious meat products, without needing to consume vast swathes of land or send a single animal to an abattoir, I'd be interested. And excitingly, it seems we're about to live through the biggest disruption in food and agriculture since we first domesticated animals and plants some 10,000 years ago. It's called cultured meat, and it's about to change everything. And to tell us why, today on the podcast we meet Tim and George, the founders of VOW, who in 2019, with a kangaroo dumpling, became the world's first company to make a food product from the cells of an undomesticated animal, instead of the animal itself. VOW are building a library of cells from which they can culture or grow meat, some of which have even been plated by Australia's most renowned chef, Neil Perry. This episode will fundamentally change the way you think about the future of food and we're so excited to welcome Team Vow into the SquarePeg portfolio. So let's start at the beginning. Meet George.
1: I grew up in a really very average middle class upbringing on the north shore of Sydney in Hornsby, uh, about maybe three or four kilometres as the crow flies from where Tim grew up coincidentally. Um, which is a pretty small world. (laughs) I went to a very mediocre high school to begin with and really wasn't good at school. I wasn't engaged. I wasn't interested. The only subject which I really started paying attention to was food tech. I got really interested in this one particular prac where we made damper and I did this braided bread and I got this really nice comment from the teacher about how that was a real standout for her of all the pracs of the year. And I was like, oh... Maybe I can be good at cooking.
0: Damper is a kind of soda bread cooked in a campfire that was traditionally made by swagmen, travellers, and early settlers in Australia. It's now mostly the purview of school children and enthusiastic outdoor types. But regardless, the damper had introduced George to the world of food, and he promptly got himself work experience at Sydney's finest restaurants.
1: I did try to be a chef, um, but when I was cooking as a child, I was mostly cooking with my mom or my grandma until I was in that sort of later stage of high school. It never I never imagined it to be a professional activity. I felt it was like a family bonding exercise uh, and something I really valued as that. But it wasn't until I started to work in professional kitchens that I found it was something that both the act of cooking was really satisfying but the environment that you work in is kind of addictive you have so many things happening at once you're doing these 16 hour shifts where it's just relentless action and activity and everything has to happen in perfect sequence otherwise you know dishes don't get delivered or things get sent back or you don't time a table right and then you jam up the pass and it just it becomes very very messy very very quickly and so you have this constant energy and adrenaline rush And this culture of sort of work hard, play hard, that as an 18-year-old is a very, very attractive proposition. Lots of adrenaline, lots of partying. Uh, That, at my age now, is pretty much my nightmare. Um, But certainly at 18, it was incredibly exciting.
0: Though George may have been disinterested in school, he wasn't a poor student, far from it. And while he worked double shifts and weekends at Sydney's fine dining restaurants, during the day he studied biochemistry and immunobiology at the University of Sydney. In and lectures, in a white coat and in a hoodie, George learned about the fields of genomics, drug discovery and development, biomolecular ecosystems, and protein function and engineering. And though he seemed to really love both staring at cells under a microscope and turning raw ingredients into delicate parcels of flavor, neither seemed compelling enough to choose one over the other. And so in the end, he chose neither.
1: And so I did this sort of fine dining circuit, spent some time at places like Tetsuya's, and I was really thinking about going down that avenue of moving into fine dining. Uh, And then there was one day I was just browsing the Sydney Uni Jobs Board, and I found this job that just said... Inventor, And I was like, holy shit, that's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. Like when I was a tiny little kid, I would like get old electronics and pull them apart and tape them together and be like, look, dad, I made a computer. And he'd be like, that's very nice. You tape some electronic scraps together. Um, But I always had this idea that kind of taking things and turning them into new things was like the dream. Uh, And so found this job as an inventor, applied for it, got it and ended up just working as an inventor straight out of uni, which gave me a chance to do kind of everything under the sun and just get exposed to so many things very, very quickly.
0: George worked for Intellectual Ventures as an inventor. It's a well-funded company founded by a couple of ex-Microsoft execs and worked on the premise that if you gave well-scoped and well-defined technical problems to super smart generalist types, they'd be able to figure out a solution. If you go to George's LinkedIn page, you can actually scroll through some of his patents. Things like, quote, ultrasound-based antigen binding detection, end quote, and nanoparticle gradient refractive index in encapsulants for semiconductor diodes. And this part is important because this was where his fascination with agri-food began too.
1: I got the chance to work on pretty much everything under the sun. I worked in medical devices. I invented types of endoscopic ultrasound. I invented a laxative at one point. Um, And then I ended up moving, I sort of got tapped on the shoulder and asked if I wanted to work on a project with the red meat industry here in Australia uh, and got brought into this project looking very, very deeply at the production of meat. Uh, And I found that absolutely fascinating, going really, really deep and learning about how our meat's produced and about the just huge range of issues that they experience in that supply chain and then from there moved into working on broadacre cropping so things like wheat canola and barley as well as horticulture and just got absolutely obsessed with agriculture and how our food is made and some of the deep problems in that Uh, and that was really my first introduction to agri-food.
0: One of George's first forays into the agri-food world was a project on grains. And as was typical, he'd received a really specific scope to figure out how to grade different types of grain using an objective grading system. So based on the technology, you could tell without a shadow of a doubt the quality of grain arriving in each hopper and sort it, value it, sell it according to that grading. And it was in figuring out how to implement an objective grading system that George really started to understand why solutions that only take into account the technical aspect of a problem, without considering human behavior or competing priorities, rarely work in practice. And it's a lesson that's relevant for Val later on. I'll let him explain.
1: There's a lot of really good, compelling technical solutions to that problem. But if you go and speak to grain graders and understand how the grain supply chain works, there is absolutely zero appetite to adopt it because everyone that benefits from that current grain system, the farmers, the graders, the wholesalers, uh, ends up losing out if you add in that objective layer because there's all sorts of kickbacks and bribes and changing of grades for people's benefit. And unfortunately, if you look at that as a technical problem and come up with a technical solution, you're never, ever going to get anywhere. Uh, And the big, big lesson out of that is the need to be working and it sounds so obvious when you talk to people in startups but you need to be working with customers and really fiercely focused on that not taking a problem from the real world and isolating it in this sort of invention incubator for several years and then just popping out the other side with a fully baked solution it was almost universally solving the wrong problem because there were so many layers between the people solving the problem and the customers which needed those solutions or they believe needed those solutions
0: so george had the agri-food bug it had gotten him good. But we're gonna pause our story with George for now and introduce you to his co-founder, Tim, so that we can catch you up to about the time that they met.
2: I grew up somewhere called Barara, which is, a lot of people in Barara probably wanna call it the North Shore, but it's not quite. Uh, it's right on the precipice of Sydney, but it's, it's surrounded by the Australian bush. And I was very sheltered as a kid until maybe my early teens. Um, and then I revolted and did everything differently. Um, Instead of being academic, and I went to a very academic high school, I decided to get more interested in things like music and creative pursuits and drama and not going to school and those sorts of things. Um, And then ultimately after leaving high school, decided to study business at university. Probably lasted, I think about three weeks the first time I went to university and then dropped out and then ended up leaving there, um, starting a business. Then when that didn't really work out so well, went back to university. I think I lasted four weeks this time. I remember the last time that I dropped out, I had a group assignment. And I was put in a group with people who distinctly stated that they had no interest in getting anything besides a pass. And I thought, if I'm going to be there, we should do this reasonably well. And so I spoke to the the tutor at the time and he said, well, in real life, Tim, you don't get to choose who you work with and so you're going to be stuck with your group. And I said, well, that's bullshit. (laughs) So I basically went out there to decide and choose who I work with.
0: As an aside, we found that the desire to work with brilliant people is a value that the VOW team hold really strongly. And it clearly began around this time for Tim. In the seven years before VOW, Tim worked for 10 different companies he either founded or joined, crashing him through different teams, roles, and industries. Sure, his LinkedIn is kind of a disaster zone of nine-month roles here and there, but you can also see how he was converging on roles that required creativity, design, and empathy. Initially, though, he started out with Corona, the beer.
2: Now I can see how all of these non-linear jobs had a progression and a journey. So I ended up getting a job in branding. So I worked for the brand teams of Stella Artois and Corona in alcohol. And basically my job for them was to be putting together the activations for client side. So going to the biggest hospitality venues around Sydney, and helping the people who own these and manage these that they should be a spiritual home for Corona or they should be instigating the seven step poor and all of the kind of repertoire of brand activations that are there for Stellar Attire Corona. And I ended up realizing that I absolutely hated it um, because all of the kind of KPIs were around selling more alcohol and I was having a lot of fun and not really kind of enjoying the progression of where I was going.
0: So while selling alcohol wasn't for him, pulling together meaningful brand experiences and understanding human behavior was something that he clearly had a knack for.
2: I had a buddy of mine who was working in design and he kind of explained to me what design was. And I said, that I think that that's actually an awesome career path, human-centered design. And he ended up going, well, hey, we actually got this job and you're substantially underqualified for it, but why don't you go for it? And he kind of gave me a bit of a, Inside understanding as to what their problems were. (laughs) And so I went in there and I took a reasonably senior job working for the National Broadband Network um, as a designer. And very quickly realized that I had no idea what I was doing. And so the first three months were really me spending a lot of late nights Googling the things that I had committed to the same day, um, only to kind of deliver them the next day um, as though I'd just forgotten to email them. And very quickly, over the space of a year, I had to basically forced myself into becoming the senior designer that I had taken a role in.
0: Tim eventually taught user experience at Academy XI, a leading design school in Australia, before landing the very senior role at Cochlear, overseeing and optimizing the experience of the 400,000 human beings that live with a Cochlear implant across the world. And this combination of experiences taught him pretty fundamental lessons in user experience and human behavior, but something else was happening for tim he'd spent the previous two years living as a vegan unlike most people myself included who'd wrestled with their ethical and environmental impacts of eating meat and then just left it alone tim had decided he was passionate enough about eating meat that he was going to figure out if it really was possible to have your meat and eat it too and this is where tim and george's lives began to intertwine.
2: I can tell you straight away that when I first talked to George, he was not the person I was going to start a company with. (laughs) That's for certain. I had become completely obsessed with cultured meat and the idea of cultured meat. And I spoke to everyone that I could, and I spoke to a guy called Nick Hazel, who is the CEO and and founder of V2 Food. And and he he wasn't doing that there, but we, we sat down and we spoke and he said, you've got to speak to this guy, George. He really understands the future of food. He's been working in it. He works at this place called Cicada, and you got to talk to him. I said, okay. So I called George, and George masterfully spent a good 90 minutes telling me why I was a moron for wanting to do this. And he had good and compelling reasons as to, as to why culture meat would be extremely challenging. And I got off the phone, and I said, I'll never speak to that guy again after that not really knowing how to kind of break into this industry i started a, a panel discussion and put that on actually at academy xi um, and it invited george to come on as a skeptic to really drive i guess a, a meaningful and interesting conversation on the topic and it was it was a fantastic panel it was a really good conversation and the outcome the general sentiment there was one that was quite positive and optimistic
0: okay so at this point Tim is leading the human-centered design practice at Cochlea, the global leader helping restore hearing and connect people to the world of sound. He is a cultured meat convert. George has left his job as an inventor and is running Australia's most innovative agri-food accelerator program at Cicada Innovations, where he's invested in and mentored 17 different ag and food tech companies. George is not convinced about the practicalities of cultured meat, but boy, is he curious.
1: I spent all of my days and nights thinking about where the future of food was going and what were the most meaningful problems to be solving within food. Uh, And you just keep coming back to animals. It's very hard to look at food and not think that animal agriculture is the most uh, compelling opportunity and the most relevant area to be focusing on right now. And then by the time Tim and I spoke, I'd probably spent six months doing a deep dive into all the different ways you can replace animals. And they kind of fit into a few different categories. You've got the plant-based stuff like Nick at V2, uh, sort of taking plants and transforming them into things that look and feel like meat. You've got the more reductionist approach, like Impossible does, they sort of take meat and decompose it into all the molecules and then find those molecules elsewhere and mix them together to make something like beef or like pork. Uh, And then you've got this third one, which is this crazy cell culture one. And when I was looking at these, you have the plant-based one, which is totally proven and totally industrialized. You had the reductionist one, which at the time was just having early signals that impossible's first prototypes had gone from the realm of absolutely horrible to only kind of horrible. So it was still very, very early on that journey. Uh, And then you had this cell-based one, um, which as uh, an undergrad who had to do a little bit of cell culture, I was still traumatized by staring down a microscope after spending hours and hours and hours slaving away in a hood to find more dead cells in my very expensive uh, cell culture dishes and my very expensive cell culture media. And so the idea of trying to scale that up to something which could feed billions of people is really challenging.
0: So this point is pretty fundamental to understanding how the alternative protein market is functioning. So we're going to recap some of the most important points here. And to do so, I'm roping in James, my colleague at SquarePeg and the lead investor for us in VOW to run through the things that you cannot forget.
3: The thing that George and Tim were arguing about was the fundamental technology that you use to make an alternative meat product. I'll take you through their argument from an investor perspective and then tell you where things are going from there. For now, all you need to remember is that there are two sides, plant-based and cellular agriculture. As George just mentioned, the technology that's most developed is plant-based meat. When you get a mixture of plant protein like soy, wheat, or pea, and you develop a process to flavor it and thicken it so it cooks and tastes like meat. There's a lot to recommend this approach. First, it's already in market. There's probably a plant-based meat aisle in your local Woolies stocking everything from Beyond Burgers to V2 Mints and Sunfed's Chicken-Free Chicken. The second advantage is that plant-based meat can use a lot of the existing supply chain. You can ship it and pack it a lot like mints. And the final advantage is the big one. It's cheaper to produce than actual meat. This means that everyone in the value chain can make good margins, which explains why Woolies is putting it on the shelves. So what are the drawbacks? Well, at the moment, they're taste and health. It's really hard to get a product that doesn't have the aftertaste of soy or pea. And the texture and structure of meat is also really hard to replicate with plants, which is why most of the products are unstructured like mints or burgers. Health-wise, the jewelry's really out. In some ways, plant-based is a lot better than low-quality meat, but it's also highly processed, so the health questions are gonna take a while to figure out. Okay, so let's talk about cellular agriculture. This is when you grow meat from cells. There are two ways to do it. The first is fermentation. That's when you use bacteria, algae or fungi to grow proteins that you then combine into a product. This process has been around for decades and it's how they make products like corn. This is not what Val are doing. What Val are doing is cell cultivation. This is when you take a biopsy from a real animal, you isolate the stem cells, get them to proliferate inside a bioreactor and get them to attach to a scaffold and differentiate into the right types of muscle cells. The drawbacks are that the technology is still emerging and for now, incredibly expensive. And changing that will require serious technological breakthroughs. But the promise of cell cultivation is that if you can make those breakthroughs, you'll be able to make real meat with all of the nutritional and taste benefits that come along with that. And the potential is that this technological approach could eventually become the cheapest of all. Of course, it's not really as simple as which platform will win. These different technological approaches are already starting to merge and hybridise. So from an investor perspective, what we started asking ourselves were questions like, well, how will consumers choose a protein product? And what type of value chain is likely to deliver the best choice in this matrix? What opportunities will arise to create some kind of sustainable, defensible advantage in that value chain? And this is where we got really excited because the Val guys had unique answers to those questions.
0: Okay. Let's kick it back to George, who is still figuring out the viability of it all.
1: I was sort of fairly deep in investigating the economics at that point, uh, and it became clear to me if you start to look at cell culture and you start to break this down to where do all the individual atoms that you need to feed these cells in what type of steel, it is something which can not only become cost-effective, It can become cheaper than any other system Uh, and that to me was what really changed my mind about cultured meat
0: after a lot of research and modeling george and tim were convinced that it was economically viable to produce cultured meat that is it could be competitive with traditional meat And it shouldn't be underestimated how important this is, because competing against an industry that has been optimizing for cost for hundreds of years is no mean feat. But the economic viability wasn't what got George over the line. It was a bike trip.
1: The kind of light bulb moment, the kind of penny drop moment for me was just after that panel discussion. I was on a motorbike trip across Australia with a good friend. We were about five days into what was the most horrendously underprepared desert ride I think you can imagine. We had no real equipment. We didn't even have emergency beacons. We didn't have enough water or any spares or enough fuel. It was a complete disaster. It was really close to us being in real trouble. Uh, And we were lying under the stars one night in the middle of the desert. Absolutely beautiful, cloudless night. Um, And we were chatting about protein and cultured meat and the future of food. And my friend made this comment. He just sort of threw out. He's like, well, I guess in 30 or 40 years, kids aren't going to associate meat and animals. And I just kind of sat up and I was like, that's it. That's the thing. The companies that are going to win here are going to be the ones that accept that and go straight to that destination and don't go through this huge commodity fight against these highly industrialized animal industries. We know where this is going. We know where this story ends. Why not build a company that goes straight there? It became really, really clear to me that you're gonna need this combination of really strong technology and a really effective technology platform combined with the ability to describe and brand and tell stories to consumers to persuade them to eat something which is so fundamentally different to what their parents and grandparents have eaten. And the winning companies are going to have both of those. And as far as I was concerned, there was no one I had met in the industry in Australia or the US who came close to Tim's ability to do those things.
0: Tim. Who'd spent his year understanding human behaviour and branding and was equally as obsessed with cultured meat, had somehow built an expertise in the precise field of knowledge that George believed was missing from the technical and economic side of cultured meat. Storytelling And to hear George describe it, it was kind of necessary that Tim had no idea of the technical complexities involved in building cultured meat products, because creating a new industry requires seemingly impossible creative thinking. And Tim had that in spades.
2: George is absolutely right. I had no idea about how challenging those technical issues were going to be to overcome. It's been a very rude awakening, but an exciting one over the last 18 months or two years to figure that out. But at the time, I was, what what we were doing at Cochlear is basically working with people that have lost one of their senses, which for most people is something they couldn't even really fathom or understand. And as a company, there was a bit of a missed opportunity, which was to understand the nuances of different cultures around the world and how they interpreted vulnerability around their senses and how they had different distinct needs, not just across countries and cultures, but then also within their own personal contexts. And so from that lens, I saw this problem around changing food and the fact that to fix the problems that our food industries have created, we need to change billions of people. And expecting people to, on their own devices, change their behavior across billions of people to have a better outcome in terms of the way that we eat from a sustainability perspective, from an environment, from a morality perspective, we're kind of screwed right? Unless we create something that's just better and tell amazing stories that compel people more than their resistance to change. And there was a huge opportunity in this and it wasn't tapped into.
0: We have spent a lot of time talking about cultured meat, but I find that it's kind of hard to grasp unless someone describes the process in visual terms. So I asked him to give us the 101.
2: To boil it right down and every time I explain it, there is a scientist somewhere who's rolling their eyes. So so the process is really simple. We Take a harmless biopsy from a host animal. From that biopsy, we can isolate the stem cells that are responsible for creating the building blocks of meat, which is fat cells, muscle cells, connected tissue. We take those cells and we seat them into something called a cultivator, which is essentially a large tank, kind of like a fancy beer brewery. And in there, they're exposed to a nutrient rich media, which sees those cells double and double and double, creating essentially trillions of different cells which then come together to form complex structures, and that's what we know as meat. It's exactly the same biologically as meat after being in there for about four to six weeks.
0: Okay, so it's meat. It is indistinguishable on a molecular level from traditional meat, which is kind of amazing. It's also amazing because it means whole new worlds of culinary potential begin to open up. If you can culture meat from anywhere, the constraints that companies practicing traditional animal production experience begin to fall away. This is where it gets interesting from an ethics perspective too.
2: Looking at the ethical standpoint, it's important to note that these companies don't think of this from the point of producing animals. They see animals as a really quite inefficient mechanism to transfer things like grain into protein. It's a really clinical way of looking at it. But ultimately, that's how the companies have to look at it to protect their bottom line. And what that's meant is that over the last century, we've become incredibly good at it. Incredibly good. We're now at the point where we can have up to 100 billion animals in our global food system at any given time. Which, if you want to look at it a different way, means that at any given point, 96% of all of the mammals on Earth are either humans or the animals that we grow to feed us, which is nuts. It's, It's absolutely insane. And from a moral or ethical standpoint, it means that it becomes a commodity and we forget about the fact that there is a living, breathing creature on the other end of this need to satisfy our protein demands. And so where culture meat looks at that differently is we go, we go, okay, how can we capture the magic of the outcome there? And meat is a really magic good product, right? It's really, really bloody good. There's a reason that Impossible will spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to replicate a, a burger experience, it's, it's delightful. But what it means is that you can remove the animal from the equation. You can have exactly the same thing, but leverage human ingenuity that's gone into things like medical applications and start to create the real good thing just without the animal involved.
0: And this begs the question, what meat will thou be reproducing? Chicken? Beef? Lamb? And this is truly where your mind will start to crumple in on itself for a second, because the answer is potentially none of the above. Because once you can culture cells from animals, you can begin to create entirely new meats that haven't existed, either because it wasn't feasible to farm animals, like a tortoise, say, or because it was impossible to combine structures together, say from a kangaroo and a rabbit. And this leap to products instead of replication is what's so fascinating about vow. I'll let George explain in more detail.
1: If you look at this as a pure cold calculating, where's the biggest market? We'd probably be making chicken, especially in a country like Australia. We eat more chicken now than any other meat and it's growing really, really quickly. But if we were to make chicken, there's two really big problems for us. The first is the uncanny valley. If we make a chicken product, we have to be absolutely 100% spot on because you as a consumer of chicken have eaten that weekly probably for your entire life so if we're even a little bit off with the texture the flavor the experience the way it browns the way it feels when it's raw when it's cooked it's going to feel so disgusting and so foreign to you and so that you have to be absolutely totally spot on with your product and the other thing is you have to nail a price point point. Which the chicken meat industry has had a century of genetic improvement, industrialization, R&D and subsidies to get to. And so you're really in a very challenging position to launch a first product which can do those things. Combine that with our absolute conviction that inevitably we're not going to be eating chicken, it seems like in our view, a waste of time to go through that to get to where we know this industry is going. The industry is going to start off by replicating a lot of these products and then to differentiate against one another, start to change properties and as that happens, that's gonna drift away from being a chicken breast to being something which is quite different and will have to be described quite differently. You're no longer going to sell that as a chicken breast, but as a branded product. And this idea of drifting away from something which is a familiar commodity to something which is quite different may sound completely nuts, but we've seen exactly the same thing over the last century in the cereal aisle. If you were going to purchase a breakfast cereal in the 1930s or 40s, you'd be buying it based on the grains that are used to make that product. Cheerios originally launched as Cheery Oats, describing it based on the grain that went into producing it. Now, I'm pretty sure everyone listening is going to know exactly what a Cheerio tastes like, what it looks like and sounds like and its color and its texture and how it crunches when it's in your mouth, but you almost certainly can't tell me the five whole grains that go into making it today and how that formula's evolved over your lifetime. And we see exactly the same thing happening in protein, it's right now. Due to the nature of how we produce meat, we can only have a single animal. And we accept the constraints and the compromises of only being able to eat that. As cultured meat matures, we're going to be able to have products which are distinct and better from anything that a single animal can produce. And we're going to move from what we have today, which is commodity meat sold on the basis of the animal that it comes from, to something which looks a lot more like the cereal aisle. Many different branded products, each describing themselves and telling the story about themselves. To different consumers, so every single one of us when we walk into a supermarket, there's a different product that speaks to us that we're choosing instead of buying animals.
2: Yeah, and and the cereal aisle has evolved even further than that. It's kind of on cereal 3.0 now. What's in a lucky charm? or what's in a captain crunch it's it's magic right what well, at least that's what the marketers would want you to think and that's it it's that no one can tell you exactly what the ingredients are that's in there but they can tell you exactly what that sensory experience is like and then now you're starting to see new brands come through where the product is focused on the function that it serves. So Magic Spoon in the States is a awesome company that's producing a ketogenic style cereal. And I literally had to labor going through their website to actually find out what ingredients were in there. And they're selling volumes of this product. And it's because people don't care. It's focused on the thing that essentially is speaking to them, which for them is the, the ketogenic movement. It's this thing that is aligned with their identity and that's how they're selling products. So going from something that is totally focused on the constituent ingredient to totally focused on the function at the other end.
0: This product-based approach to production is radical and genuinely different from almost anyone out there in the world working on alternative meats. But the entire industry is still in the midst of proving out an approach that works.
1: The whole world of alternative proteins, all these plant-based, even a lot of the cultured products all come from this view that what we eat should stay the same but how we make it should change completely look guys at impossible have done some of the most incredible food science and uh, microbiology to develop something which matches exactly the experience of a cheap beef burger and it's an incredibly high-tech way of getting to one of the most commoditized foods on the planet Our view is as more and more of these replica companies enter the industry, they're all going to be creating faithful replicas of those cheap beef burgers or similar commodity meat products. And as they do that, they're going to need to compete against one another. So whether they're using cultured meat or plants or that sort of molecular reconstruction of meat they're going to be looking to pull levers to differentiate themselves. And they're going to be grabbing on the lever that says nutrition and altering that saturated fat to some omega-3s. Are they going to be grabbing on that lever-enabled flavor and changing the way that it tastes or how it cooks? Or maybe they'll be adding functionality by adding in nutrients. Regardless, those things are going to drift away from being a true faithful replica of the animal that it came from and start to be something quite distinct and quite different.
0: And it's not just the alternative meat producers who are considering how to alter meat for the better.
2: One really important addition in there as well is that real animal meat producers have been doing the same thing for a century. They've been pulling different levers as well. They've just been constrained by the fundamental biology of an animal. So meat scientists forever have been looking at how they can change the environment that an animal is in or what you feed them to have very minute outcomes in terms of the level of fat that's in there or the nutrient profile that comes out the other end. But now that there's this way richer opportunity to be able to just directly alter those different things.
0: And so in 2019, with the help of a credit card, Vow sprang into life.
1: Early on, one of the things we both felt really, really strongly about is we needed to do it. We needed to make something before we felt comfortable approaching investors and trying to raise money And so we started off, Tim and I, in a room together over a couple of weekends in March, sort of working out what it would take to get to that point. And you need a few little things like scientists in a lab and all the reagents and consumables and equipment in that lab to be able to do that. And we pretty much just got out our credit cards and we spent about $50,000 over the course of four or five months getting to the point of our very first proof of concept of that kangaroo dumpling Uh, That just sort of laid the foundations for everything that Vow has become, and then at that point we felt really comfortable to say we set out to do these things, we executed on these things. Here's the next set of things we're going to execute on, and we're going to just set out and do those too. And so around that time we were really, really lucky to raise uh, a small pre-seed round from Blackbird and Grok Ventures, along with a handful of really, really wonderful and supportive angels, Uh, and then then following year was a matter of just doing more of that, of saying we're gonna do something, running into a heap of what seemed at the time like insurmountable problems and just working through them one by one, building a really, really, really strong team along the way. um, And then getting to the point of raising the recent round with SquarePig.
2: I think um, any deep tech or science backed company that wants to scale to customers that are in the billions of people is gonna have to be a very capital intensive business and as a capital intensive business you only need to get better and better at managing money and in the early days for us and i think with any tech or science companies the major challenge is how prohibitively expensive it is to go to from zero to one and so what we wanted to do in the early days was prove that we could break the rules and the conventions of going from zero to one in our industry, which is generally you raise quite a bit of money with some great technical prowess and you make your proof of concept. And instead we focused on going, how do we beg, borrow and steal? And it was definitely all three of those things. Um, and we ended up you know, with very limited money from our credit cards, about 60,000 or 50,000 Australian dollars creating our first prototype. And for us, it was as, like George said, as much a proof of concept that we could do it. But it's also proof that we could do it cheaper. I mean, we had bits of equipment that were free. We found a lab that was the size of a shoe closet and didn't have air conditioning at the time that we were able to use it after hours. There was many different ways that we optimised for cost, um, but ultimately that allowed us to do it cheaper and faster than than really anyone else had.
1: In retrospect, those early days sound really super fun and sexy. It's like, yeah, we started this in our credit card and did it in the evenings and weekends, but the reality of it is we'd work a full day at our jobs get to the lab and then just sit there in this tiny, tiny, poorly ventilated lab, which was often 32 or 33 degrees when we were working in there without air conditioning. And we would work until 1, 2, 3 a.m. And that was every single night and weekend for months and months on end. It was absolutely grueling, but it was also entirely necessary to be able to get to this point and really be able to prove that we could do it with such limited resources.
2: We've been able to achieve almost as much as our competitors with less than 1% of the same resources. And it's something that we're going to continually want to do time and time again. And each time that we need to go back and dip into capital to grow this company, we're hopefully able to raise less but do more each time. And that's something we've been able to do so far.
0: This is a very unusual way of building a biotech company, not only in their approach, borrowing labs and sneaking in sessions after work, but also in fundraising small amounts extraordinary, really. And their approach has ensured that VOW really is a very special place to work.
1: One of the real advantages that Tim and I have had founding a company where at least in the first couple of years is almost 100% science is we don't come with any of the conventions uh, of how science should be done. And so there there are so many layers to this that we've just run into and been like, this is absolutely insane. We can do this better. But fundamentally, Biologists are trained as scientists uh, in universities or occasionally biopharmaceutical companies, uh, and they're trained to do things manually for a whole range of really, really good and sensible reason. What this means is some of the smartest people on our planet spend most of their days manually moving liquid between vessels, heating it up, cooling it down, spinning it. Uh, that isn't the best use of their time. And we're now at a point where between software and some very, very low cost automation, you can take a lot of that manual handling out of their day and allow a single scientist to do 20, 50, 100, 1000 times more than they'd otherwise be capable of. Uh, And we're now really seeing that maturing in Val. Uh, We're just on the precipice of having some of our most common workflows being automated from all of the liquid handling, all of that hand pipetting of moving that liquid between vessels is now done by a robot. Uh, And then all of the data acquisition is about to be done by a robotic microscope. And then all of the processing and analysis is done uh, by a software built by our in-house engineering team. And so suddenly a single scientist is going to be able to do close to a thousand times the workload than they were at VOW less than a year ago and enjoy doing it a hell of a lot more.
0: They're hiring, by the way. (laughs) And Val's team is a wonderful mixture of expertise and experience. And we couldn't finish without them talking about what makes the team so special.
2: In the early days when we started hiring scientists at Val, we really wanted to optimize for people who wanted to break the rules and be really creative. But we also, we need to work with people who are real doers as well, and just focus on the execution. Because when we are looking at an end-to-end, Production process and how to automate it, we need a view from both sides. So, we need the people who are going to go, if we automate this, I can focus on doing more creative things and improving the hypotheses that we're working with. But then, we also need to have people who are optimizing and working on the perfect process so we can understand how to replicate that with automation and technology as well. So, when we're hiring, we're either looking for people that skew really hard on either creativity or really operationally focused, or people who have a nice mixture of both and can talk both languages.
1: Ultimately, it's our goal at VOW to empower everyone on the team, whether they're scientists, engineers, food technologists, chefs or designers, to do their best and most creative work and take away the rest.
0: Ultimately though, this all comes back to food, and their long-term vision is hugely exciting.
2: So one of the major things that we're excited about is this idea of food being a way that people can express themselves. and. We've seen in different categories across food, as more innovation comes in and choices explode, people become more brand centric and they use it as a celebration of their own personal identity. And by taking a technology like cultured meat and exploding the number of options that are available, it allows people to essentially express themselves individually through food. And what we wanna do is create essentially this house of brands of all of these kind of different products that for people allows them to embody different individual parts, whether that's the ketogenic cereal or the one that helps plant a tree every time that you buy a product or what have you. Food is an exciting and nuanced experience and the people who are going to do well in food and the most important food companies are the ones that understand and adapt to that.
0: So if you're passionate about the future of food, want to read more about what it's like to join the team at vow or see what real cultured meat looks like you can google vow food and be delighted by what awaits if you're interested in partnering with a team i also really encourage you to get in touch but for now that's it for our conversation with tim george and james we're still on a series break while we prep for the next season but i hope you've had the most wonderful start to the year and i'll be in your ears again soon I couldn't finish without thanking Romy, our wonderful producer, Tim and George for their time and James for hopping in and providing some insight too. We'll catch you soon.